is Pastor Appreciation Month, and my dear beloved friend Matthew Poole and co-pastor decided to give to me as a sign of his love all 37 verses of Mark 13 and the abomination of desolation. So I love you too, uh, Matthew, and next year's a coming, so we shall see. Uh, there's no felt boards, finger puppets, or prophecy maps involved today, but we are sitting in this passage to hear and to listen in on a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples about primarily devastation and destruction that is coming in their generation, as verse 30 reminds us. They're going to see and hear and experience the destruction of the temple and the devastation of Jerusalem. And Jesus, a good, kind Savior and shepherd, is speaking to and loving his disciples in this moment. And I'd love for us to pray as we begin this time to entrust it to the Lord and to ask for his help as we dive into this passage together. God, as we come to your word, we come needy. We come needy of wisdom, needy of enlightenment and illumination from your Holy Spirit to our souls that you would Make clear this word to our hearts and would you cause us to worship Jesus, cause us to love him, cause us to live faithfully in this world. Use your word mightily in these minutes, God, for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Life is hard. Letdowns, losses, disease, death devastation, the grind of fighting our sin, injustice, suffering across this globe, difficulty, suffering, trial, it's inevitable. No matter how much we try to insulate and numb ourselves, it's a reality. And beautiful days like this where there's no clouds in the sky and being in America and a lot of different things can cause us to be convinced otherwise, but the truth of the world and the truth of this life is that it's difficult. It's broken. We pause for a moment, even us at Harvest Church, you think about these last two years, we've endured a pandemic. We've lost loved ones. We've been sick over and over and over again. We've battled mental health. We've battled besetting sin. We've faced ongoing, seemingly endless health struggles. We've run into the headwinds of division and discord and disunity and culture and in the church and in the world at large. Life is hard. And this morning we come to this passage called the Olivet Discourse because it's delivered on the Mount of Olives. It's just a long, continuous teaching, the longest continual teaching of Jesus in this book. And in it, Jesus is warning his people about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And he's pointing them at the end of this chapter to the return, the second coming, where he would bust through the clouds. And while there's parts of this text that are going to be dealing directly with the stages and nature and logistics of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's going to be talking specifically to them about that, the end of the day, I don't think that's the primary point of this passage. Because along with that destruction of the temple and along with the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come unbelievable pain. 
and suffering and loss and difficulty. That pain and suffering and difficulty is going to tempt these Jews and his disciples to be led astray, to despair, to give up. It's going to tempt them to listen to other voices and pursue help and hope in other places. And Jesus is coming into this moment to speak to his people about what does it look like to live faithfully to God and to Christ in a fallen, broken world that's really hard. In a life that really is surrounded by difficulty. And that's why this text matters for us. Because it's reminding us that, yes, Jesus, our King, he promises suffering. He doesn't come as a distant rose-colored king giving to us some utopic view of the world and some rose-colored lenses where everything's just great and perfect already right now. No, he comes as a real king and a real savior through suffering to tell us it's coming. The world is broken. Sin is in you. Suffering is in the world. It's broken. But he's also instructing us in this text about what it looks like to live faithfully in this broken world. And he's giving to us an unshakable hope in a future world where he's the returned, reigning, ruling, righteous king over all things. And his glory has no end. So let's dive into this passage. It's 37 verses. It's a lot. So hang tight, anchor into Mark 13, and we'll plow right through this. And in the beginning of, these, of this chapter, in verses 1 through 2, we see an introduction into this passage where Jesus is coming to coming out of the temple and his disciples are looking at the temple and they're saying wow what what amazing stones that Josephus would say some of which were 60 feet long what an amazing building Jesus this is incredible and Jesus says to them do you see these great buildings there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down you see, Jesus is coming out of this temple and he's very abruptly, very succinctly saying to these disciples, last week in Mark 12, I looked at the scribes and the Pharisees, this office, this position of religious leadership and rule that all of history has sort of led to. And I said, they're, lit, they're headed toward condemnation. They and their pretentious self-righteousness is a sham and the gospel's bringing it down. And then he says to the disciples, not only that, but this week, this big, massive, glorious, huge, beautiful temple that represents what religion looks like and relationship to God looks like, and it's based around access to certain spaces and sacrifices and being able to get in and do He says, it's coming down. Not one single stone there will be left stacked one on the other. This is massively significant for these hearers because it represents the, the full upheaval of everything. It, it, it's, it's every bit of history and life and religion and relating to God as they known it with all the conce conceived categories flipped on its head. He's saying the old ways are gone. The old wineskins are gone. There's new wine, new wineskins, a new king, a new way, forming a new people. Will you follow me? And what's going to 
come in these next verses, especially from 3 to 23, is going to be him talking directly to his disciples about what life is going to look like on the backside of him turning this whole thing upside down. And it's not you have your best life now. It's not private jets and golden toilets and all the Christians having everything that they want. It's hard. It's death. It's upside down crucifixion. It's being burned at the stake. It's difficulty. And Jesus is sort of asking them right here, hey, this is coming. And if all you're left with for hope and peace and security in this life is me, is that enough? And he would ask us the same thing. If politically or culturally or physically or logistically, everything gets pulled away by trial and suffering and devastation, by marginalization and persecution, and literally all that we, the people of God, are left with, holding on to as a risen Christ, would that be enough to sustain us? Would it be enough to unify us? Would it be enough to hold and carry us? And in this passage, Jesus is asking us to trust him. He's asking us to cling to him more than we cling to anything else. He's promising us suffering. But in these next verses, he's instructing us inside of suffering how to live faithfully, how to not quit, how to keep going, how to treasure something that will last forever. And that's what we're going to see in verses 3 through 23, along with 28 to 31. In these verses, Jesus is focusing on the destruction of the temple and the devastation of Jerusalem. Again, that verse 30 reminds us most of these people will see. And he's lovingly speaking to them about what's coming. And he wants them to not be just derailed by this amazing, terrible suffering. And he wants them to be able to live faithfully inside of it, inside of this broken world. And the first instruction that he gives them is to not be led astray. He sits down opposite the temple with his boys, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, and they say to him, okay, that seems pretty crazy and massive, so insider trading tip, you've said this is coming, what do I need to buy and sell here, Jesus? Like, when and where and how is this all going to go down, so I'm just queued up for this? Give me some insider tips. And interestingly, Jesus does not give them a whole lot of very specific logistical details. He gives them a long pastoral homily about how to live faithfully in a broken world. And the first thing that he says is, so they say, when and where and how? What's it going to look like? And he says, don't be led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Isn't it interesting that he knew that inside of this beleaguered, downtrodden, suffering people, a lot like today, the people of power and in pursuit of power would want to come and manipulate the hurting to advance their agenda. And he's saying, it's all going to come down and it's going to look like God is dead, Jesus is gone, and there's no hope here. And people are going to want to lead you astray. And Jesus is saying to them, don't be led astray. He's saying, I'm here with you. You're going to watch me in the days to come walk through suffering and go to the cross and rise from the dead. And I'm telling you right now what's going to happen. And he's saying, I'm your savior. I'm your king. Don't be led astray. You see, at the core of what Jesus is doing here is he's toppling a cultural system of religious behavior that was minus an actual heart of love of Jesus. 
And what the destruction of the temple and the devastation of Jerusalem is going to tear down is any appeal to cultural, behavioral Christianity or following of God, right? It's not going to be cool to do that. And he's saying in that moment, it's not going to be what kind of animal you bring or whose lineage you have. It's going to be who's your king? Who's your king? And Jesus is here right now as a, as a coming king, declaring that what he has to bring and what he has to offer is only experienced along with exclusive allegiance. He says, don't be led astray. Don't give the lordship of your heart and the seat of your affections and the center of your hope to anyone else because they're going to come. They're going to come, he's saying to his people. Religious leaders, political leaders, cultural leaders, other people are going to come with voices vying for their hope and their peace and their rest. And he's saying, don't be led astray. Rather, remain faithful. Believe and hope in what you're about to see happen when I go to that cross and I rise from the dead. Believe that and trust better promises. And as we listen in on that conversation with Jesus and his disciples, we would do well to receive those instructions to not be led astray. Don't be led astray, Christian, by unbiblical teaching. Don't be led astray by political posturing and, 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 and setups and systems that, that, are, that are good for cultural capital and, and, and advancement in the world, but that are bad for following Christ as King. He's saying, don't be led astray. 21st century American church, don't be led astray by the myriad of voices and blogs and podcasts and options that are not in your Bible. Don't be led astray. He says, hear my words, see my life, and follow me as your king. How do we make it through a broken, battered, difficult world where everything's been torn down and voices are everywhere? We as Colossians says, we set our minds on the things that are above. We put our eyes on Jesus. We orient our hearts around his word. And we, a lot like he set his eyes like flint toward Jerusalem, we as a people by faith set our eyes like flint on him. And if somebody said to you today, hey, who are you with? Who are you with? Are you with the Braves? Are you with? The Panthers, are you with the Packers? Are you with the Republicans? Are you with the Democrats? Are you with Jesus? Because everybody minus Jesus is leading astray. It's separation, it's division, it's toxic. It's, it's tearing down what Jesus is meant to be building up with his very self. And he's saying to us, do not be led astray. He's saying to these people, they're going to say, I'm he. I got a way of salvation. I got a shortcut. I got another path. And he's saying, don't be led astray. He says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The second thing he says is, don't be alarmed. You've got a compassionate, tender Jesus saying, the suffering is coming, but do not be alarmed. He says, I'm about to go through the cross. And I'm going to raise from the dead. You're going to see that. 
There's going to be a lot of years that happen on the backside of that, and this is all going to come down, and you're going to be, you're going to be tempted to be alarmed and think, did I really see that? Did that really happen? Maybe God is dead and Jesus didn't rise. And, and he's saying, don't be alarmed. When suffering comes, that's not unsettling the sovereign reign of God over all the universe. When famines and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars come, when your Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and Reuters and Politico banners are just full of all the suffering in the world and it's so it's so all-encompassing, you can barely breathe. He says, don't be alarmed. The God who spoke the cosmos into being, He's sovereignly somehow reigning over all things. It may not be, it may not be easy to see. It may be rubble and devastation around you. Disciples, don't be alarmed. And we're prone to be alarmed. We're prone to fear. We're, the Bible's loaded with the commands and the invitations of God to his people to not fear. And that's what Jesus is saying. He said, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. He said, now he's not saying don't be unconcerned. He's not saying be ambivalent to suffering in the world. But he's saying, I'm the king of the universe. If you're in me, I'm reigning over all things. And as we will see at the end of this passage, he's going to say, I'm coming back. Jesus says, these things must take place. Josephus reminds us that in these years after the resurrection and during this, this, this destruction, these natural disasters and devastations were, were happening and these people were experiencing this kind of difficulty. And Jesus is trying to encourage these disciples and us to live in a broken world that's fallen and hard and difficult without fear. Not because we're manufacturing our environments and our circumstances to numb ourselves, but because we've got our eyes on a risen Christ. We've got our sight set and our affections oriented on a sovereign king. I'm thankful this morning as a suffering, needy man that Jesus didn't come deceiving his people and hiding the bad news and trying to paint reality with some beautiful brush strokes. But he just came giving them the news. Life's going to be hard. What you can see and what you will hear about will threaten to undo your sense of faith and confidence in the risen Christ. And he's saying to us, I know. If you're here this morning, you're like, life's hard for me. Things are broken down for me. Jesus is saying to you in this conversation, I know, do not be alarmed. He knows that life is hard and right in that inevitable hardness, he meets us. He knows these people are going to, these disciples, John, James, Peter, and Andrew, and many more will experience this pain and he is not offering to them some Hope that's in a very distant other place. No, he is Jesus right there with them in the midst of it saying, I'm here, do not be alarmed. And he goes on to say, instead of being alarmed and in fear, he says, but be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He says, rather than make your 
future coming of destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, rather than making your uh, bomb shelter because you're afraid to hide from it. No, he says, be on your guard. Be out in this world where the hurting and needy folks are that don't have faith in the risen Christ. Be on your guard. And he says, listen, they're going to deliver you up to the councils. They're going to take you before the synagogues. They're going to beat you for my sake. But he says, be on your guard because through that suffering, the gospel is going to advance, right? Tony Marita says that this is a, a foreshadowing basically of the whole book of Acts. Where Acts 1-8 begins to happen and the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And Jesus is saying, this devastation is going to come, but before it comes, the gospel is going to get cut loose out of here. But, disciples, it's not going to get cut loose from a moral majority who's got all the footing of religious and cultural power is going to get cut loose through a persecuted, struggling, suffering, beaten down people who aren't afraid, but who are engaged in the world. It's not going to move forward, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, if you guys are all in your bomb bunker with beanie weenies and Vienna sausages, scared. Don't be afraid. Be on your guard. Your Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Your God is sovereign in the universe. And as Ignatius said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. All that death, all that suffering, all that devastation, it's God sowing seed in the ground of an otherworldly hope, an otherworldly salvation, an otherworldly peace. It's going to be the good news for the world. He says, be on your guard. He says, this is coming. In verses 28 through 31, he says, as sure as when you see the fig tree in blossom, you know that the fruit is coming. I'm guaranteeing you that this suffering will come to you in your generation. And yet when it comes, do not retreat, but be on your guard and be ready to live as my disciples, as a witness to that world that will be utterly devastated. And in absolute need of hope and healing and life and salvation. And he's saying to his disciples, that's going to happen through you. Through your floggings and through your beatings and through your sacrifice, the gospel will be proclaimed. And so, thus far, we've got a destroyed Jerusalem, a toppled temple, and a bunch of disciples getting beaten and flogged before the courts and the councils and the synagogues. And then the, third, the next instruction is in, out of verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. The next instruction is, do not be anxious, but trust the word of God. He says, all of that is going to happen. And on one side, you're going to be tempted to fear, which is going to cause you to be tempted to retreat. He says, be on your guard and advance. He says, on the other side of the coin, you're going to be tempted to anxiety, which is going to also tempt you to grab control. 
and steer your own life. And he says, don't be anxious. And don't grab control of your life, but depend on the Holy Spirit. He's saying to his disciples, you do not have the resources to make it through what's coming for you. You cannot do it. Sons of thunder, you got no clap. You got no power. You cannot endure. You need a helper. Don't be anxious about how to make it, about what to speak, about what you're going to say and whether that's going to then immediately compromise your life or your family or your livelihood or your well-being. He said, don't be anxious. I'm going to give you the words to speak. And just like I'm thankful that Jesus isn't a rose-colored unicorn God who gives us a view of the world that's not real, but he comes to us in our mess, I'm glad that the disciples are not Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and the roll call of all the super righteous people, but they're uneducated, normal folk like us. They're, they're not awesome, and we're not awesome, and there's a great solidarity in this text to say, in our collective unawesomeness, let's set our eyes on an awesome helper, a magnificent, gracious Holy Spirit who is for us. Jesus is saying, do not worry, disciples. I'm with you. I am with you. The temple may be down. The, the, the city may be destroyed. Your, your father and your brother may hate you. Your family may be in disarray because everybody's getting led astray and they're going a million different directions. But let me tell you, you may have lost everything, your family included, but you've not lost me, the helper. He's going to be with you. Trust him. He's saying that to us. We're, these words are written for our instruction. He's saying, Christian church, followers of Jesus right now, it may become very difficult. You may increasingly and likely will, and I, lose things in this life because we're following Jesus. And not inconsequential things, not small things, things like jobs and sibling relationships and status. We may, we may lose a lot. But what we have, if we're in Christ, is something that's unthreatened by any opposition that would be under this sun. It is the Holy Spirit, the one who rose Christ from the dead. And Jesus is saying, how do you want to keep, how can you keep living faithfully in a broken world that's that devastated? You can't. You can't. We can't, church. We can't keep this church unified and our marriages healthy and our souls content in Jesus and our sin crucified and our affections on him. We can't do that. We cannot keep our contentment and joy anchored in the gospel minus the help of the Holy Spirit. And would that be an invitation to just smile? Smile. Exhale. Release all of that pent-up need to do it and hear Jesus saying to you, you can't, but I can. Let me carry you in faithfulness through this hard, difficult life. We endure and we make it by fleeing from anxiety, but also by trusting in this 
this word of God. It says Jesus is speaking in this, this moment where they've got to make this decision. Whose words am I going to trust? Am I going to look back on this moment and believe the words of Jesus? And it's really what he gets at in verse 31 when he says to them, listen, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will not pass away. As Solomon said, everything under this sun is passing away. It's fleeting. It's a chasing after the wind. You know what lasts forever and is a sure rock for God's people to endure faithfully in a hard, difficult, broken world? His sure, unchanging, steadfast, rock-solid word. Himself. His word that reveals himself and that instructs us how to live faithful. And he says, church, when the going gets tough and the literal earthquakes and the political earthquakes and the religious earthquakes and the familial earthquakes all start rumbling and unsettling, don't run somewhere else. Run to me and run to my word. That's what we need. Church, we need his word. You need his word. We need to hear from heaven the words of our risen king. We live faithfully by not being anxious, but trusting in the word of God. And next we endure and live faithfully. We live faithfully in this world by enduring in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says there in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's been said that this is sort of a synopsis of what Jesus is really longing for with these disciples and his people and for us is that we would endure, that we would not quit, that we would last, that we would cling to him through all of the difficulty of life. And what he's going to mention in verses 14 through 23 are going to be some very specific manifestations of the suffering that these people are going to experience when this temple comes down and the city gets demolished by Rome. And he knows it's going to be unbelievably, immensely hard. And when does it say that this is going to happen? It says, Jesus says, this is, this is going to happen, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And Jesus, stand-up comic of the universe, looking down in the, the throes of human history and all the millions of words that would be spilled about this, says, let the reader understand. It's like he should have said, let the reader not understand. Let us all have our minds blown and then spend the next 2,000 years trying to figure out who in the world is this abomination of desolation? Where is he and what is going on? And some people see this abomination of desolation as a specific, particular, antichrist man of lawlessness. Others see it with a, a twofold manifestation with both a particular man of lawlessness who would arise at the time that the temple was destroyed and then another manifestation sort of at the second coming of Christ. But Daniel, thankfully, the Bible, Daniel 11 gives us clear instruction as to who this abomination of desolation is and what to expect. In Daniel 11, 31 and 32, Daniel says, Forces from him, the abomination that causes desolation, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm 
and take action. Jesus is saying, disciples, people, you're going to look and you're going to see a, a military, political, religious, powerful person in the temple desecrating and demolishing that temple where he ought not to be. And when you see that, he's saying to his people, get out. And a lot of ink has been spilled in this passage about what parts of this passage are talking about the destruction of the temple and what parts are talking about the second coming of Christ. But it's pretty clear in these verses that it makes sense that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple by how he encourages these people to respond to it. He says, flee to the mountains. Don't, he says, get off your housetop. Don't go back in. Don't go find your favorite picture or pot from your grandma. He says, get out of there. Get on the mountains. I hope it's not winter. I hope you're not pregnant because it's going to be awful. And that makes sense, right? If he's talking to people who are going to experience this devastation and he's saying, when this happens, flee, get out. Josephus talks about this time as just an absolutely awful time where famine and death and cannibalism and the worst kinds of suffering you can imagine were taking place. And Jesus is saying, it is going to be harder than you can ever even imagine. Uses the language. There will, in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. See, it's going to be awful. It's going to be more difficult than you can ever imagine. But he says, to the one who endures, you will be saved. The, the gracious, tender Jesus is saying, guys, disciples, followers, don't quit. When life is hard, when this world is broken, don't quit. When you're facing hardship and sin and difficulty and struggle and your life's falling apart and your family's falling apart and your, 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 your whole conception of reality is potentially being tumbled down, he's saying don't quit, right? Who's the crown of life reserved for us? To the one who endures to the end. Christian this morning, don't quit. And that's not escapist, ambivalent, sweep your suffering under the rug, don't quit. That's a deep-seated, resurrection-informed, powerful voice saying to you, hold on. Don't quit. Don't give in. You're hard-pressed. You're suffering. The light is not there yet. The fog is not lifted yet. And Jesus is saying, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. And you say, well, Drew, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering. I've been suffering. This isn't just simple stuff. It's hard. Life is hard and the world is broken. How do I not quit? And Jesus says to these disciples, by the mercy of God. He says, into that moment of inevitable, immeasurable suffering comes the mercy of God. If the Lord, verse 20, had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. You've got a righteous, just, holy God, and you've got a merciful, tender, gracious God who is with you. He sees and he hears 
the cries of his suffering people in a hard, broken world. And he says, how do you keep living faithfully? You live faithfully inside the mercy of God who's carrying you. Your good shepherd who is walking with you in the valley of the shadow of death will not forsake you. He went through the, he went through the valley of the shadow of death for you. He's now in the land of the living and surely goodness and mercy will follow all who are with him all the days of their life and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guaranteed by his resurrection, it's the mercy of God. And that's why the New Testament says, cast yourself upon the mercy and care of God. Whatever the gambit of suffering may be, would we be a people casting ourselves upon the mercy of God? And he goes on and he says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. And that moment, minus 28 through 31, which we've already talked about, he sort of wrapped up the portion of this conversation that's aimed at their suffering and how they're going to make it and live faithfully. And he turns now his attention to his second coming where he says, in that suffering and in that pain, you make it by the mercy of God and you make it and you live faithfully as you long with hope for his return and for the new world that he will bring. He says in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He says, disciples, you're going to see devastation unlike anything else you've ever seen, but walk faithfully in this broken life knowing that one day you're going to see your king come out of the clouds in power and glory, and he's going to go to the four ends of this earth into every pocket of poverty and injustice and death and loss and mental health struggles and besetting sin struggles and anxiety and depression and every corner of this world where his people are and he's going to gather you and he's going to bring you to himself in his redeemed new creation. That's what he's going to do. And he's saying, disciples, when life is hard, long with hope in that world. Set your hope in a new world where I come again and make all things right. He is returning, church. He's returning visibly. He's returning triumphantly. He's returning redemptively. And he's going to make sure that nobody, that nobody that's clinging to him, nobody that's hoping in him, nobody that's being held by his mercy is left unsatisfied or needy in that moment. No, every enemy, every fear, every opposition, every difficulty, every bit of the pain that we endured for all of our lives will be over. In a moment, when he comes again and he says, it's sure. He's saying, it's sure. It's Tuesday. And you're about to see me go to a cross. But Good Friday's coming and Easter's coming and I'm going to rise from the dead. And he's saying to them, long in hope for this new world. Titus calls that 
moment, our blessed hope. When Jesus comes again, this revealing of our hope that's anchored us through this hard life. And so, armed with that hope, how does Jesus leave us here? He leaves us awake. He leaves us living in this broken world with a passion for the mission of Christ. He says in verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard. Keep awake. He says, keep awake and stay awake three times here to end this little sermon on life and the brokenness of it and how they should live. He says, I want you to know you need to stay awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when, the ro- or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He says, be alive, be on mission, be a, a, a witness to the world of the hope of the gospel. He says, don't be concerned about the day and the hour. Don't be huddled up around wondering about all of this and be motionless in the world. No, he says, be awake. He says, I'm leaving and I'm going to come back and I don't want to find you asleep. And he says the same to us this morning. He says, stay awake, church. Stay examining your soul. Stay killing your sins. Stay living in community. Stay living in accountability. Stay in blessing the marginalized. Stay in ministry in this world. He says, don't be found loving and domesticating your sin. Be found loving and declaring the gospel. He says, don't be occupied with watching for signs. Be occupied with walking in faithfulness. Spend less time, disciples, reading the news and worrying about the sign and spend more time sharing the good news of the gospel. Would that be the marks of the church? More time watching over our souls. More time living in faithfulness. More time manifesting good deeds in the world like a city on a hill and sharing the good news of the gospel. In the midst of dark, difficult, divided, toxic fallen, broken humanity and this world that we live in, would we be a countercultural beacon of glory and light, unified around Christ, living on His mission? He came to bring a new way to live. He came as a sympathetic, empathetic Savior who has promised His disciples and has promised us this morning, life will be hard. The way will be tough. But in that life, I'm sending you my spirit and I'm giving you my word to anchor you to live faithfully as a witness to the supremacy of God over all things. We have a hope and a peace in Christ that's not just stuck somewhere far, far, far out in the distance. No, it's right here where we taste it and see it and have it this morning. We're a people who follow a crucified but risen king. May we follow him faithfully through this painful, broken world while we live passionately for his glory and as we long for his return and his, and his eternal kingdom. Let's do that, church. Let's live faithfully for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you speak real, true, difficult, difficult, 
hope-filled words to us in your word. You come bringing to us reality and bringing to us yourself. And God, this morning, would we lay down our pretentious self-righteousness? Would we lay down our cheap Christianity? And would we take up a faith that would follow you through the darkest night and the deepest storm and the, the hottest hell that this life may bring to us, knowing that you've gone through it. You are our suffering servant. You are our risen king. And you endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy of the crown that was coming on the other side. And now you offer it to your people by faith. Help us to take it, to take that life and to take that hope by faith this morning. Grant it to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond in singing.